Hey, thanks for being here this morning. We are super glad to see you. I'm going to start by telling you a story about a time in which God did not do a miracle for me. A time in which I really wanted and needed God to come through. And to be quite frank, he let me down. So I was 20 years old and I had bought myself a new car. I was really proud of this new car because it was a Ford Focus. (laughs) Woo! Four-door sedan. This gorgeous blue color, you guys. Now, the the reason that I was so proud and excited about this car, because seriously, I would roll around Dallas, Texas in that car, just hoping people would see me. And so the reason I was excited about that car, a couple of different reasons. One is because it was brand new. I got the Ford Focus literally the year that it was introduced to the market. And so I was really excited to have a brand new car. There would be people who were like, oh yeah, I heard about those. Cool to actually see one. Can I sit in there and look at it and stuff like that? Nobody does that to a Dodge Neon. You know, they don't get excited about that. And so I was really pumped to be one of the first people to have this particular model of car. Now, another reason that I was so excited about my ride was the fact that I grew up extremely poor. I've kind of hinted at this before. Um, My parents had very significant substance abuse issues when I was growing up. And so they literally, I mean, week after week after week, God bless them, they would smoke up the rent money. There would be nothing left over for basics. I mean, like clothes and electricity. I lived, I grew up most of my life in the scummiest trailer park you can possibly imagine in Texas. And Texas trailer parks are the worst of them all. It was bad, you guys. We had nothing. There would be times where our electricity would get cut off, and this would happen three or four times a year, and we wouldn't be able to pay the bill until the next month rolled around. And so my sister and I and my dad and a steady stream of stepmoms would uh, go three weeks sometimes in a row without any electricity in our house. I mean, we had nothing. I had to have free lunches when I went to school, which was the most embarrassing part of my entire life. And the reason why is because when you had free lunches in Texas, I don't even know if you guys do free lunches here. Maybe everybody gets free lunches in Canada. But in the U.S., if you want lunch at school, you have to pay for it, unless you're poor. So if you're poor, you have to submit a form to your school that says, we're poor. This is how poor we are. And so I had to have my dad fill out a form that said, my son needs free lunch or he might not eat today. And so I brought it into the office. I turned it in. It was on permanent record how poor I was. And they gave me a little card that said, this kid gets free lunches when he comes through the line. Now, if they had any sense in their heads, it would have been kind of low-key, it wouldn't have been super noticeable. But the free lunch card was canary yellow, and it was like this big. So every time I went through the line, there's the hot girl from biology, and I'm like, here's the free lunch card. It was so embarrassing. I mean it. What I eventually did was I went to the lunch lady, and I said, listen, I don't like handing you this card in front of my friends, in front of people that are not my friends, but I want them to be my friends. So when I come through the line, I'm going to pretend to hand you something, and you just take it and act like I gave you cash to put in the register. And she's like, okay, that's fine. I don't care. I know you got free lunches. You've had free lunch every year you've been here, so no problem. And so I basically like game the system so I didn't have to be embarrassed by just how poor we were. I mean, guys, I could go on and I could tell you all sorts of stories. I won't bore you with them too much today because I need to save some of those stories for later messages. But but the thing is, when I got this car, you know, for me, for a 20-year-old kid that had absolutely nothing growing up, it was like proof, tangible proof 
that I had taken a step beyond my family, you know? It was like, wow, my dad has never, ever owned a brand new car. He couldn't possibly get financing. No way, but I did. And so I was really proud of that car because it meant I was on my path, you know? I finished high school. I was getting ready to go into college. That car represented so much to me. The problem was I grew up in a poor family that never taught me how to manage finances, We never talked about budget. There was no such thing as a budget in our house. Are you kidding me? And so I had no clue the discipline it took to get a car like that and to maintain the payments. So within two or three months, you guys, I was already behind on the car note. It's so embarrassing. I can't, like, it's just hard for me to even talk about now how stupid I was as a 20-year-old kid thinking I could get away with the decisions that I was making in that moment. And so, of course, I fell behind, and the bank's calling me, and they're like, we need the money, or we're going to have to take the car. And I tried everything I could. My dad's like, you want to borrow money from me? Nuh-uh. My sister was dating a drug dealer, and I could borrow money from them, but I decided that was probably not a smart deal. So I didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and I was stuck. I had nothing, no money, no way to get money. Um, I had a minimum wage job at a grocery store. There was no way I was going to be able to pay this car note. A few years before, I'd become a follower of Jesus. And I thought I remembered the pastor one time talking about like miracles, you know, like God coming through in the last moment, rescuing people and giving them exactly what they need. And I thought to myself, the only person that's going to be able to bail me out of this situation is God himself. And so as a last-ditch effort, I got down on my knees. I didn't know back then that you don't have to be on your knees to pray. I folded my hands because I thought that's what you had to do. I closed my eyes. I prayed in King James English, oh God, I prayeth that thou bless me, you know, all this silly stuff. I just didn't know any better. And so I prayed and I prayed. And I'm telling you guys, my faith was strong. I believed that God was going to come through for me in that moment. There is no way he's going to let me be embarrassed in front of my friends and family. No way he's going to let anything go wrong. And I was still praying the day they came and took my car. And I was so upset. I was bitter. I was angry at God. I didn't understand, you know? Like, if I can't count on God to come through when I need him, then what good is he? Seriously, why should I bother with him if when I need a miracle, he's nowhere to be found? Now, I'm willing to let you laugh at me a little bit this morning by telling some of my uh, backstory, but I know you felt the exact same way in your life at different times. You've had that thought in your mind. If God isn't going to come through for me, If he's not going to provide for me when I need the finances, or if he's not going to salvage my marriage, or if he's not going to get me the promotion, or if he's not going to heal my body, if God isn't going to do those things, then what does he do? Now, when you start talking about miracles, everybody always wants to know, why is it that God sometimes does miracles and sometimes he doesn't? Because there have been times in my life where God showed up financially, And in the last moment, he provided in ways I could have never predicted, and I was able to make ends meet and keep moving forward. But then there are times like the one I just shared with you in which he was nowhere to be seen. There are times in your life where God showed up and he healed you, he gave you rescue, deliverance, whatever it might be, and then there are times that he didn't. And so as we start to talk about miracles, I know that there are some of you guys that are here and you're upset. Because you're waiting for a miracle right now. Or you needed a miracle six months ago, 
And like my situation, it seems like God is nowhere to be found. So as we move into week two of this topic of miracles and kind of dissecting what the scripture says and doesn't say on the subject, I want to do a couple of things. Number one, I want to talk about the purpose behind every miracle. I want you to walk out of here this morning understanding why God does any miracle at all. And there's a very simple and direct and straightforward explanation for why God does a miracle anytime he does it. The second thing that I want you to walk out of here knowing is why it is that God might say no to you, either right now or at some point in the past or maybe even at some point in the future. Why does God do miracles sometimes, and why does he say no to us, even when we pray so hard, even when we need it so desperately? Now, I'll tell you guys, and we'll get into this in a moment, I know exactly why God didn't give me a miracle. It was really obvious, okay? And I'll, if you don't know, I'm going to go ahead and just lay my head on the table and let the axe fall. I'll tell you exactly why God didn't do a miracle for me. And maybe that's your situation, or maybe it's a little more complex, but I hope by the time you leave this morning, you'll have some sense of what God is trying to accomplish when he says yes or no to a miracle. Now, in order to do that, we're going to go to a passage of scripture in the book of John. And we're going to spend a lot of time, this is a fairly lengthy passage, but it's a story passage, and it's one of the most fascinating stories in the Bible. I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's the story of the resurrection, the miracle of the resurrection of a man named Lazarus. So John chapter number 11 is where we're going to be this morning. We'll have all the verses here on the screen, so you can read along from your seat if you like, or if you've got a Bible and you want to pick it up and check out context or check a different translation, you're more than welcome to do all of that. And as we get ready to read this, I want to say to those of you guys that are here this morning, and you're skeptical, you're like, but you know, miracles aren't scientific, Dan, and you know, I don't even believe there's a God, so why would I believe that there's a God of miracles? That's just, I don't even get it. You probably weren't here last week, because we spent an entire morning speaking to the skeptic and explaining how we can be sane, logical, rational people, and yet still believe that there is a God who wants to work miracles in your life. So I would encourage you, if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to the podcast. You can find that via our Facebook page that Joshua mentioned earlier, or on our website. It's 35 minutes, and it's my best go at an explanation for the rational belief in miracles. So you can listen to it and then get done and say, well, that was stupid, but at least give it a listen before you say, I'm stupid, okay? John chapter number 11. This really, really cool story happens towards the very end of Jesus' life. I mean, this is just weeks before he's going to be crucified. The scripture says here in John chapter 11, verse number one, a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in the town of Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. So three kind of main characters here, Lazarus, the guy, and his sister, Mary, Martha. Lazarus got sick. And it turns out this is the same Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. You're like, what? We'll talk about that one a little bit later, okay? Let's give it some context. This is who these people were. They were real people. They actually existed. This isn't like some sort of made-up myth or nice story designed to teach a point. These are real people and the real situation that they went through. So the scripture says her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Now, this is kind of the first time that we really hear about this family in the Scripture. And yet, the, the, the Bible tells us that they were Jesus' dear friends. 
That in itself is kind of weird if you think about it, you know? We don't often think about Jesus having bros, Jesus having friends. We think about him having his disciples, his followers, and things like that. But Jesus actually had friends, people he enjoyed hanging out with. I'm not totally sure if that means there were also people he didn't enjoy hanging out with, but there were definitely some that he liked spending time with, some that weren't even a part of his 12 apostles. And so Lazarus gets sick. It's such a significant sickness that his sisters, Mary and Martha, say, let's bring Jesus into this, because we've seen how he's healed other people in the past. We know he can do miracles, so let's bring him in and have him do a miracle and raise Lazarus back to full health. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Now, this is an important verse, and there's a lot to this. I want to kind of break it down here. First of all, what does Jesus say about Lazarus' situation? That it won't what? It won't end in death. That was his promise. Now, what do you think the people listening to Jesus heard him say. The messengers, the disciples, when he said, this sickness won't end in death, what do you think they thought he was saying? That Lazarus won't die. But did Jesus promise that? No. He said, ultimately, this sickness will not end in death. This is really important. You need to understand this, that God makes promises in the scripture, promises on which we form the basis for our belief in miracles and deliverance that God is going to come through for us. But oftentimes we mishear what he says. We hear what we wish he said, or we wanted him to say in that moment instead of taking him at his word. If they had taken Jesus at his word, as we'll see throughout the rest of this story, they actually would have had a totally different experience. But because Jesus said something and they interpreted it only the way that they wanted to interpret it, it caused them a great deal of heartache. I've told you guys before, there is a promise from the Bible, the overarching promise that we see in many different places, we could cite Romans 8 as one in particular, where God says that for the believer, for you and I who are followers of Jesus, things can go badly, but they can never end badly. And this is the promise we're going to see play out in Lazarus' story. They're going to go bad, but it won't end bad. My situation, my stupid, immature financial situation, it went bad, but it didn't end bad. It ended better than I could have ever hoped, and I'll explain to you how that'll be in a moment. When you're thinking promises, when you're claiming promises, when you're taking those cards that we put on your chair in New Year's, I want you to be very certain that you're reading and understanding what God actually said and not just what you wish he said. So, the scripture says here, Jesus speaking, no, this happened. The reason this whole situation, his sickness has come about, is for the glory of God and so that the Son of God, meaning Jesus, will receive glory from this. That is an important statement 
We're going to come back to it in just a moment. When you start asking the question, what is God trying to accomplish in miracles? Why does he say yes here and no in so many other places? You need to understand the weight and the meaning and the import, the importance of this particular statement. It is done so that God will receive glory and the Son of God will be glorified as well. Now, the last verse here that we just read says, Jesus stayed where he was for the next two days. This is kind of like an intense moment, if you really think about it. His dear friend is sick and dying. He's already proven he has the power to heal him. In fact, in another instance in the Bible, somebody comes to Jesus and says, my child is sick, will you come to my house and heal my kid? And Jesus says, there's no need. Go home and your kid will be healed. He just speaks the word and the kid is healed. So Jesus didn't have to go to Bethany. He didn't have to show up at Lazarus' house. He could have just said the words. And yet the Bible says when he got the news that his dear friend was sick and dying, he stayed where he was for two whole days. He didn't go. He didn't speak. He didn't pray. He just let the situation ride out. I find it fascinating that the Bible doesn't even tell us what Jesus did during these two days. It's not like he was like, well, there's a big crowd and I need to uh, perform these big miracles and they're going to be recorded and you'll understand why I'm waiting right now. No, the Bible is totally silent. It doesn't tell us what he did for two days, which to me means it wasn't all that significant. It's not like he was out performing bigger, better, other miracles. He was just waiting, waiting waiting some more. Maybe you felt that way, like God is just waiting. You've sent the message, God, I'm here, and you say you love me, but I need you to come through here. I mean, we're getting close to the wire, and I'm not sure if this relationship is going to last, and I'm not sure if I'm going to have enough money, and the doctor gave me a poor diagnosis, and, or my, my mind is just depressed all the time. God, I need you to come through here, and you feel like he's waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Jesus decided to wait two days before he went. So the next verse says this, finally, finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Judea was the province where the city of Jerusalem was. Okay, it's time, guys. Let's go to Judea. We'll go to Bethany. We'll see what's up. But his disciples objected. I don't think that's such a good idea, Jesus. Rabbi, There are only a few days ago in Judea, people were trying to stone you. They were trying to kill you for the things that you were saying and doing. Are you sure you want to go there again? Like, are you thinking this through? I know you love Lazarus and stuff. Maybe you should just speak a word and heal him from afar. That would be a smart way of doing it, right? The disciples were unsure that this was a good idea. But instead, Jesus responds, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will soon get better. They didn't understand Jesus, which is good news for those of us who often don't understand Jesus. If you pick up the Bible and you're like, I cannot make sense out of this, don't worry, the disciples couldn't make sense out of Jesus either. Lord, if he's sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought that Jesus meant that Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant that Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Now, I want you to take that verse 
And I want you to add it to the verse from earlier where it talks about God getting glory from our situations. These two sentences spoken by Jesus are the key. These are the things that you need to keep in mind when you're praying for a miracle, when you're wondering why God said yes to them and no to you, you need to keep these things in mind. The truth, the principle that this passage teaches us is that all miracles point beyond themselves to something even bigger. Jesus never does miracles for the sake of the miracle themselves. Every true miracle points back to God, points to Christ. It demonstrates something bigger than the action taking place. I mean, sure, raising somebody from the dead or healing somebody who's sick or saving a marriage or finances coming in at the last moment, that's a pretty big deal, but it's not as big as the one to whom the miracle points. Even the word for miracle in the Bible teaches us this. In English, we say the word miracle, but in Greek, the word is semion. And the word literally means sign. Because every miracle is a sign. It points you back somewhere else. Not to the event itself, not to the rescue, but to the one who rescues. Every miracle is ultimately a sign. And a sign never points to itself. It always points towards something else. So can I step on your toes for a sec? You let me do that. I'm going to say something that's going to come across as a little harsh, and I'm going to tell it to you because you need to know this, because you're praying for miracles. You want to see God do big things in your life, but you need to understand that God's glory is more important than your comfort. So when I prayed for a miracle as a 20-year-old kid, you know why God didn't do a miracle? Because it was a selfish request, man. I wasn't going to glorify God. I wasn't going to learn anything. I was going to be like, thanks, and go back to what I was doing before. You see, God's glory is more important than my comfort. And when God does miracles, it's not about alleviating your discomfort. It's about glorifying himself in your situation. Oftentimes, we will not see miracles because we're asking with the wrong motives altogether. James chapter number four tells us that we have not because we ask not, and yet even when we do ask, we ask with the wrong motives so that we can consume it on our lusts. When I ask God for a miracle, oftentimes I'm asking him to make me comfortable. I'm asking him to make life easy. I'm asking him to give me what I think is best for me. And God knows what's best, and oftentimes, that involves a difficult situation. We pray for miracles. God, I want you to do something big in my life. And we fail to realize that often for a miracle to occur, something devastating has to come before. And if you're not willing for something devastating to come before, then you will probably never see an actual miracle. Because miracles don't happen when life is good. Miracles happen when life is tough. When somebody's sick, when your friends have died, when your husband files paper, when your mind will not stop its thinking patterns, that's when miracles come. But if you're praying for a miracle and unwilling to walk through that valley first, you're going to be set up for disappointment. If we want the miracle more than we want the God who works the miracle, we'll never see the miracle. Because every miracle points beyond itself 
to the God who does the miracle. All right. Okay, I hope you remember it. I don't know, it's not an easy thing, but I hope you remember it, okay? Let's keep going here. Next verse here says, so he told them plainly, we'll we'll back up just a sec. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, because he was a twin. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, well, let's go to and die with Jesus. He was the Eeyore of the disciples. (laughs) When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. What this means, without going into too much detail, is if Jesus hadn't dallied around, he could have got there before he died, but he didn't. So Lazarus died because Jesus waited. Jesus waiting led directly to Lazarus dying. Bethany was, the town of Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, finally, she went to meet him. But Mary, her sister, stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus what we've all said before. Oh, this is such an honest statement. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. So then Jesus enters into this weird theological dialogue with her. He says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, yes, He will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Like I know when you die, eventually you go to heaven, that sort of thing, right? Like I think that's what you mean, Jesus, right? And in verse 25, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me will never die. Can I just say that either Jesus was literally the son of God, or he was a total lunatic. Like if you had somebody in your life that said, anybody who believes in me will never die. And even if they do die, I promise you they will live again. You'd be like, crazy. And yet Jesus claims that for himself. And so you've got to decide, do I think this guy was crazy? Or is there something more going on here? And then he asks a question, and it's such an important question. He says, do you believe this, Martha? You know, you could just cut her name out. You could insert your own name. Jesus might as well be saying, do you believe this, Dan? Do you believe when something has died in your life, when your situation has collapsed and there seems to be no hope whatsoever, do you believe that I have the power to raise things from the dead? Do you believe that I have the power to restore things from the brink of collapse? Do you believe this? JMO, Megan, Bill, Phil, Carl, I don't know. Do you believe this? Martha says, Yes, Lord. I've always believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. And as a quick little aside here, you know what we get? We get a picture of the gospel. You see, the teaching of the Scripture is not that we are good people so God loves us. The teaching of the Scripture is we're all very broken and flawed people and God loves us still. The difficulty is whether or not we believe God loves us in the middle of our brokenness and sin. He doesn't say, Martha, have you been praying? He doesn't say, Martha, were you nice to your sister Mary? 
He doesn't say, did you give money at the synagogue last week? He doesn't say, did you go to the temple and make sacrifices? He doesn't ask her what she's done. He asks her what she believes. You see, the heart of the Christian religion is that we believe that God is far better than we could have ever hoped. And despite our sin, despite our brokenness, all we need to do is to put our trust, our belief in this Messiah who has the power to bring life out of death. Do you believe this? Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and he wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside of the village. He didn't even come to the village, much less to their house, at the place where Martha met him. So when the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. And when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and she said what her sister said, minus one line. She said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, echoing everything we said and her sister said. But you know, her sister had a little more faith because her sister said, and yet I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Mary just lets the statement hang. You could have come through, but you didn't. Thought you were our friend. I thought you loved us. I thought you cared. And yet when we needed you, you were nowhere to be found. So in verse 33, When Jesus saw her weeping and he saw other people wailing with her, the Bible says a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. And they told him, Lord, come and see. Then John 11, 35 is the shortest verse. There are 31,000 plus verses in the Bible and this is the shortest one. It says, Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him, how much Jesus cared for Lazarus. You know what I take from this passage? The emotion of Jesus, the words that are being used here, he's angry because death has led his friends to believe that there is no hope. He's upset because he said goodbye to a friend and the people around him believe there's no other way out of this. You know what I take from Jesus' emotion? I take consolation. I take comfort because it tells me that God cares more about your situation than you do. Jesus was more upset about this than even the sisters who had lost their brother. It mattered more deeply. You're saying, God, you're waiting. You're not showing up. I need you. Where are you? And you think he doesn't care. And yet what we see here and we see over and over again in the life of Jesus is that he cares more about your situation than even you do. Even when he feels distant, even when it seems like you're the only one that seems to be concerned, Jesus cares more about your situation than even you do. So, Scripture says, some said this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? He did miracles. Why couldn't he do them again? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. And he said to them, roll the stone aside. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. 
the smell will be terrible. I like the Bible because it's honest, you guys. Like if they made this story up, this is probably not a detail they would have included because it sounds so dumb for her to say this in this moment. This just doesn't even make sense at all. And yet this is what she, she's like, I don't know, it's going to stink. Like maybe this isn't the best idea. And let me just say quickly, and then we've got to move on. Perhaps you're not experiencing a miracle because there is something that God has called you to do that you think is ridiculous. I'm not going to roll the stone away. It stinks. I'm not going to pick up the phone and make a call. I know how it's going to go. What's the point? I'm not going to go see a counselor. They never helped me before, so why would they help me now? I'm not going to open the Bible. I can't make sense out of that. That's ridiculous. I could go on and on and on with things that God might be calling you to do, but if every time he asks you to do something, you say, that's ridiculous. Why would I ever do that? And you don't see a miracle, tell me whose fault it is. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you what? If you believe. So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and he said, Father, thank you for hearing me. Now, I know you always hear me, but I said it out loud so that they will believe that you sent me. What's about to happen is a sign. It points back to something else. The fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the promised Messiah come to save us from all of our ruin. I know you hear me all the time, but I said it out loud, God, so that they would understand what's really going on here. Then Jesus shouted out, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet were bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. The big thing that I get from this story, the thing that man has brought me so much comfort, and I hope it'll bring you a great deal of comfort as well, the thing that I believe is going to take, uh, going to make communion, the Lord's Supper that we're about to take together, the thing that's going to make it more beautiful, more powerful, more wonderful than you could have ever understood is that this passage teaches us that sometimes God's no leads to an even greater miracle than his yes. See, God said no to me when I asked him to bail me out when I was in financial trouble. He said no, and I was upset. But that, that moment, that collapse, that embarrassing chapter in my life was the impetus for me learning how to handle my finances better. And so life began to change so that I got a car I could afford. And eventually I was able to buy a house and I'm able to live generously, give here to the church, give to other people in need. But if God had said yes to the miracle I was asking for, I would have never gotten to where I am today. Sometimes God's no leads to an even greater miracle than the yes. Jesus said, no, I'm not going to Bethany. I'm not going to go heal Lazarus right now because he knew that an even greater miracle was coming if he would say no now so that he could say yes in the future. Some of you are in that four-day period right now. You're waiting. You're wondering, where are you? Why haven't you come? And I want you to cling to the promise that this will not end in death. It can go badly, but it cannot end badly because sometimes God is saying no now so he can say yes to something even greater tomorrow. Nowhere is this borne out more accurately, more fully, more truly than in the last day of Christ's life. We don't have time to read the scriptures, but the Bible tells us that 
in his last day, Jesus sits down to have communion, break bread, and to drink wine with his disciples. Just before they do, he says to them, one of you is about to betray me. And he was speaking of Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He was absolutely correct in what he said. And I want you to think about the fact that in the moment that God could have performed a miracle to save Jesus, he said no. When they came and arrested Jesus, God could have done a miracle to save Jesus. He said no. When they put him through a mock trial, Jesus could have done a miracle and defended himself better than Perry Mason. But he didn't. He said no to himself. When they beat him, when they whipped him, he could have healed himself, could have fought for himself, he could have freed himself. But he didn't do that. He said no to working a miracle for himself. When he was nailed to a cross, when they stabbed him in the side with a spear, when he died, separated from God, he could have worked a miracle, but he said no in the moment so that something even greater could happen three days from then. So often, God's no leads to a greater miracle than his yes. When Jesus said no to saving himself, he said yes to saving you and me. Whoa! You say, God, where are you? You're not coming through. You're not meeting my needs. I don't feel like you love me. God has been in your shoes. He said no to miracles for his own benefit so he could say yes to the greatest miracle for your benefit. When we take communion together, do you understand? We are celebrating the moment when God said no to himself so he could say yes to you. This is why communion is so powerful. This is why miracles happen because God does what brings the most glory, not the most comfort. And that applies to him as much as it does to you.